Welcome to Village Mentality, where melanated people are connected in spirit, love, and community. What's up, kings and queens? Beautiful people everywhere. It's your girl, CK McGee, and I am your host. How's everybody doing out there? I pray that you are all doing as well as you can be. Thank you so much for hanging out with me for another episode of Village Mentality. Well, it looks like the 2020 Olympics are in full swing. They were postponed from last year because of the pandemic. And it was really cool to see Hideki Matsui, former Yankees outfielder, being one of the athletes to carry the Olympic torch into the stadium. I almost didn't recognize him. And then my girl, Naomi Osaka, was the one to light the cauldron to officially begin the Olympic Games. Now, I do have to say, it is kind of strange to not see the spectators there as they continue to take necessary precautions because of the pandemic. But once gone, you realize just how much energy the fans bring to the competitions. Hopefully, everyone that is there will stay safe. And shout out to Team USA. So Village, you know me. I like to take a little bit of time to talk about some things, whether it's about current events, entertainment, or something that's just on my mind. So why don't we get into my segment called Let's Talk About It. So if you've been following the show, you all know that I am a huge football fan. Shout out to my New York Giants. And I see that the NFL came out with some new guidelines recently concerning all players who are not yet vaccinated. Time is going by so fast that I can hardly believe that it's about that time for NFL teams to go back to training camp. Now, the NFL has informed informed teams that the game cannot be rescheduled during the 18-week regular season, which includes 17 regular weeks and then a bye week due to an outbreak among an unvaccinated player that the team with the outbreak will suffer a forfeit and the loss will be credited to their record while the opposing team will be credited with the win. Also, if a game is canceled and cannot be rescheduled, then neither team's players will get paid. Now Village, just in case you did not know, the players receive their yearly salaries on a weekly basis during the regular season. The league also said that it did not anticipate adding a 19th week in case the game is canceled. Now, last year, they did have to delay some games, but they were ultimately able to play all 256 games within the regular season. The league further stipulated that it will not easily cancel a game. 
In a written memo to the teams, it stated that games will not be called off, quote unquote, simply to avoid roster issues within a position or group. So Village, in other words, if a team does not have, let's say, um, a healthy quarterback and they were not vaccinated, then that will be that team's problem. Mm -mm -mm. Now, according to the team's constitution and bylaws, each team is expected to be ready to play at the scheduled time and place. And a failure to do so is deemed conduct detrimental. There is no right to postpone a game unless it is required by government authorities, medical experts, or at the commissioner's discretion. Now, among other financial penalties, the league informed teams that if a game is rescheduled due to an outbreak among unvaccinated players, that the team with the outbreak will be responsible for all additional expenses incurred by the opposing team. And they were also informed that if a game has to be canceled, the league can impose additional sanctions at its own discretion, particularly if the COVID outbreak is reasonably determined to be the result of a failure by club personnel to follow applicable protocols. Now, nearly all the clubs basically, I guess, have vaccinated 100% of their tier one and tier two staffs. So tier one includes coaches and football personnel, and tier two consists of additional staff who may come in contact with players. The memo stated that more than 75% of players are in the process of getting vaccinated, and that more than half of NFL teams have vaccination rates of better than 80%. Now, of course, you know, Village, that none of this comes without some mixed feelings uh, on the vaccines from some of the NFL players. So for instance, um, receiver Ty Luckett from the Seattle Seahawks. He's the team's player representative to the NFL Players Association. He said in June, this past June, that he had gotten vaccinated, but he would not tell his teammates what to do. So in a quote, he said, I'm not about to force people to get it or anything like that, Lockett said. He thinks at the end of the day, it's their decision. But for me, you know, I made the best decision that was right for me and my family. And so I ended up getting it. But all I can do is just tell them what I know and tell them why I decided to get it. But I can't tell somebody what to do with their life, unquote. Cornerback DJ Reed, also from the Seahawks, said, this past spring that he was 50-50 on whether to get the vaccine. He tweeted shortly after the news broke last week about the operating principles that he had gotten the vaccine, but only grudgingly. Quote, I didn't want to get the vaccine, he did. We don't know the long-term effects. If you have the vaccine, you can still catch COVID. The NFL and the NFLPA, which is the um, NFL uh, Players Association, they made getting the vaccine a competitive advantage. I just got my vaccine because I don't want to hinder my team. I don't know how I feel about that, unquote. All players who are not vaccinated will have to abide by last year's protocols, which include daily testing, 
and being quarantined when on the road. There was also mention of significant financial penalties for unvaccinated players who are deemed to have broken these protocols. Unvaccinated players that break protocol will be fined $14,000 each time that they break protocol. Whoa. Now, two assistant NFL coaches, one with the Patriots and another with the Vikings, are actually poised to leave over these COVID-19 requirements. NFL mandates all tier one staff, which includes the coaches, like I said, they all must be vaccinated. An NFL memo said that the only exemptions that would be considered would be for those who provide proof of medical or religious reasons to not receive the vaccine. Now the Vikings continue to hold discussions with offensive line coach Rick Dennison, according to the uh, NFL and the uh, Players Association. Um, but you know, the COVID-19 protocols for training camp and preseason games, the team said in a statement, at this time, Coach Dennison does not have an exemption to the vaccination requirements. And I did not see any indication as to whether or not the Patriots and co-offensive line coach Cole Popovich are talking at all. Um, so his decision might just be final, but we'll be looking at that. Now, a running back for the Tampa Bay Bucks, Leonard Fournette tweeted, quote, a vaccine, I can't do it, unquote. And newcomer Antonio Hamilton called the vaccines an experiment. And in a tweet said, quote, if they get rid of me for sharing information with the uninformed, then so be it, unquote. I still believe that it is a personal choice, Village, as to whether or not a person wants to be vaccinated. And in cases like these, there needs to just be accommodations made so that everyone involved can be safe. Now, I'm not sure if you all have ever heard about the Black Jockeys. You, you may have seen them on people's lawns or stored away among antiques, but it was brought to my attention that they actually played a role in the Underground Railroad. And I have to give a shout out to one of my listeners who brought this to my attention. I just love village participation. So I invite you all who are listening out there to hit me up with anything that you would like me to discuss on the show that will help educate us all. Now, legend actually has it that this all started with George Washington when he created the first groomsmen pitching post or Jocko in honor of the frozen slave in the 1770s. Here's the story. Jocko Graves was a young African-American boy whose service during the American Revolutionary War earned him the commemorative statue, the Lawn Jockey. Graves' story is a short and tragic one. It begins on Christmas Eve, December of 1776, with General Washington's crossing the Delaware River to battle the British Army. A local African-American man, Tom Graves, answered the call for local militiamen to fight in the general's army. Graves' son, Jocko Graves, was only 12 years old, but he followed his father into the army, ready to fight the enemy. General Washington, upon hearing about young Jocko, 
was astonished at his readiness to engage in battle. The general, however, and rightfully so, deemed Jocko Graves too young to be involved in battle and ordered him to tend to officers' horses and to keep a lantern burning so that the soldiers would know how to return to camp after the fighting ended. Meanwhile, General Washington and his army boarded boats and began the crossing of the icy Delaware River. A blizzard that night delayed some of Washington's soldiers from making the crossing main body, and two soldiers died of hypothermia before reaching the Christmas Day battle the next morning. On December 26, the following day after Washington's victory over the British, the general returned to find that young Jocko Graves had frozen to death in the spot where he was ordered to stand watch with the lantern still burning in his clenched, frozen hand. Washington was so moved by the boy's dedication that he commissioned a statue of the quote-unquote the faithful groomsmen stand in honor of graves at the general's estate in Mount Vernon. Over time, the statute's originally, original form changed and its origin story was forgotten. And the statue became known as the lawn jockey. And by the mid 19th century, was usually depicted as the Rachel Sambo character with very dark skin and big protruding lips. It was also often used as the hitching post for horses and made out of cast iron, while others were used as ornaments for front lawns. Slaves planning their escape understood the jockey statue would guide them to the Underground Railroad and to freedom. Abolitionists would set the statutes out to signify the home was a safe stop on the Underground Railroad. So a ribbon was always left hanging on the statue, right? If a green ribbon was hanging, it indicated safety. But if there was a red ribbon hanging, it was an indication to keep it moving. There were other codes used as well, such as a striped Jocko's shirt, which was a code that the location was a safe place to swap horses. If a Jocko was in a tailed coat, it meant overnight lodging and food was available. And a blue sailor's waistcoat meant the homeowner could take travelers to a port and get them on a ship to Canada. And to think all this time that I thought there was a negative connotation attached to these so-called lawn jockeys, it just goes to show you, Village, how important it is that we know our history. And we need to make sure that we are passing down the his this historical information to our generations so that it will never be forgotten again. Now, there was a recent study that was released, which reveals another devastating impact that the coronavirus pandemic has on the children or has had on the children of the world. Researchers at Boston Children's Hospital estimate more than a million children may have been orphaned because of COVID-19 related deaths 
according to their model, which was recently published in The Lancet. They define orphaned as losing at least one parent. And that's news to me because I thought you had to lose both to be considered that. But it is estimated that over 1 million children lost a parent or custodial grandparent. And of these, a million lost a mother, father, or both. And overall, 1.56 million children estimated to have experienced the death of at least one parent or a custodial grandparent or a grandparent that was living with them. Now the countries with the highest number of children who lost primary caregivers included the United States, South Africa, Peru, India, Brazil, and Mexico. Now, it has been said that they know from their research that the loss of a parent or a caregiver can upend children's lives and potentially affect their development if they are not in a stable home setting. And that was said by the study's author, Chuck Nelson, who's a professor of pediatrics at Harvard Medical School and Boston Children's Hospital. Now, to calculate this pandemic-associated orphanhood, Researchers use excess mortality and COVID-19 mortality data from 21 countries that accounted for 77% of global COVID-19 deaths during 2020 and early 2021. And in the study, COVID-19 related deaths included deaths caused directly by COVID, as well as those caused indirectly by the pandemic through lockdowns, restrictions on gatherings and movement, decreased access or willingness to seek out or accept healthcare and chronic diseases. Quote, they drew attention to something that is often underreported, and that is survivors who are left in the family, said David Abramson, who's a professor at New York University's School of Public Health. Quote, people don't often think about how families respond to events like this, and losing parents is like a secondary crisis on top of the initial crisis, unquote. Now, the study not only brings attention to the pandemic's long-lasting consequences for families, but also the future of their mental health, said Dr. Nora Volkow, who is the director of the National Institute on Drug Abuse, which partly funded the study traumatic experiences, such as the loss of a parent or a caregiver, are associated with an increased risk of substance use, mental health conditions, and other behavioral chronic health conditions. Quote, though the trauma a child experiences after the loss of a parent or a caregiver can be devastating, there are evidence-based interventions that can prevent adverse consequences such as substance use, and we must ensure that children have access to these interventions, unquote. That's what Volkow said. And Nelson adds, the impact may be worse among children who are older, actually. You know, those that are placed in institutions or temporary situations or struggling with mental health even before the pandemic began. Children from disadvantaged communities disproportionately impacted by the pandemic are more likely to also experience its long-term effects, said Baron Mathema, who's a professor of epidemiology 
at Columbia University Mailman School of Public Health. And of course, those disadvantaged youths that they're talking about are those who are in BIPOC communities, Black, Indigenous, and people of color. Although the pandemic may be waning as more people get vaccinated, he said, officials must allocate extra resources to these communities in the future. Quote, it's an intense period of time where there's extraordinary loss. There's extraordinary horror. And then suddenly the pandemic is over, Mathema said. But the wounds still linger on. Well, Village, all month long, I've been talking about BIPOC mental health in honor of National BIPOC Mental Health Awareness Month. There are a lot of terms that you will hear me use on the show. And I just want you to know that these terms are always evolving. Last week, I shared with you the story of CBS2 news anchor, Cindy Chu. She did a special called Breaking the Stigma, where she shared her personal story as she deals with depression and she talked about her hospital stay after attempting suicide. I want to send a shout out to another member of the village, Tom through, correctly stated that we no longer use the term commits suicide. That is absolutely correct. And I'll tell you the reason why. The reason that we no longer say that is because it implies negative moral judgment and it's associated with sinful or criminal activity. And we as advocates and mental health professionals in no way want to discourage anyone from seeking help as a result. You can either say death by suicide or completed suicide. Either term is appropriate. Now, Suicide Prevention Awareness Month again is in September. And I will share some of the terminology that's being used to discuss this topic at that time. But once again, I would like to remind anyone out there who may be in crisis, or if you're having thoughts of suicide, there is help and there is support. Unfortunately, we're not able to read minds. So it is important that you speak to someone with whom you are comfortable about your feelings. But I would like to share once again, the number for the suicide prevention hotline. It's 1-800-273-8255. It is confidential and it is available 24 seven. Okay. Now, as promised, I will wrap up the month by talking about the issues that our Latinx brothers and sisters face with mental illness and their challenges in accessing mental health care, right? Let us first begin with some statistics, as I like to begin with. 18.3% of the U.S. population is estimated to be Latinx. Of those, over 16% reported having a mental illness in the past year. And that is the equivalent to over 10 million people, which is more than the number of people who live in New York City. Shout out to my home state and city. Now, the Latinx community 
is made up of diverse individuals, oftentimes set apart by their country of origin or ancestral history. For the Latinx community, mental health and mental illness are often stigmatized topics resulting in prolonged suffering in silence. This silence compounds the range of experiences that may lead to mental health conditions, including immigration, acculturation, trauma, and generational conflicts. Additionally, the Latinx community faces unique institutional and systemic barriers that may impede access to mental health services, resulting in reduced help-seeking behaviors. A Mental Health America works at both the national and local levels to raise awareness about mental health. They believe that everyone at risk for mental illnesses and related disorders should receive early and effective interventions based on the unique needs of the, of the individual, which is why it's so important that we have these discussions uh, during this month and really beyond it, anytime really, about the, the differences um, in how uh, groups within the BIPOC community um, deal with, think about uh, mental illness, and then what some of the barriers are, again, to them being able to access mental health care. So they are focused on creating materials and content that help to bridge the gap in knowledge about mental health conditions, with the goal of normalizing conversations around mental health in this community and really within all communities. The goal is to destigmatize mental illness so that we can have conversations about it much in the same way that we do about physical illness. They strive to ensure that our Spanish language materials are translated and adapted to be reflective of the various subgroups that make up the Spanish speaking community. There is a complete list of Spanish language materials, including our Spanish language screening tools, which is also provided on their site, okay? Now, here's just some demographical information to just give to you all. It is estimated that by the year 2060, the number of Latin people in the United States is projected to grow to 119 million or 28.6% of the population. 33% of U.S. immigrants are Latinx, and 79% are living here in the U.S. that are living here in the U.S. They are citizens. Now, what are some of the attitudes towards, you know, mental health, mental illness? because it's really important to be able to understand it from everyone's perspective. Now, religion can be a protective factor for mental health in Latinx communities, but it can also contribute to the stigma against mental illness and treatment. You know, talk of demons or lack of faith, sinful behavior, which is kind of similar to the African-American communities in terms of how they look at mental health through that lens, right? So what's important here is to target religious institutions to help encourage good mental health treatment and that it's, it, it, it ensures uh, their parishioners that seeking help is important, right? So because people have a tendency to sometimes turn to their, their faith leaders, their pastors, their priests, they feel comfortable in knowing that 
these individuals um, will understand their struggles. They look like them. They, they talk like them. And so that's why it's important to understand how religion can play a major part in, in ensuring that people in these communities and others, you know, get help. Religion is very important to a lot of people out there, right? Now, what about the prevalence of mental illness? Now, research shows that in Latinx communities, in that population, older adults and youth are more susceptible to mental distress, which relates to immigration and acculturation. And acculturation is, is, is simulation, simulating into a different culture, okay? The rates of mental illness uh, among Latinx Americans, you know, they could be lower than the, the general, you know, population, but they make a distinction that mental illness is actually higher among U.S.-born Latinx people than those who are foreign-born. I thought that was an interesting fact, right? And according to the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services National Survey on Drug Use and Health, overall mental issues are on the rise for Latinx people between the ages of 12 to 49 years old. Serious mental illness is on the rise in age groups of 18 to 25 and 26 to 49 in Latinx communities. Major depressive episodes are also on the increase for Latinx youth between the ages of 12 to 17, as well as, again, a little older adults, 26 to 49. Suicidal thoughts, plans, and attempts are also on the rise. Again, 18 to 25-year-olds are of very much concern in Latinx communities. Now, what are some of the treatment issues that are faced in Latinx communities? Well, Latinx people are more likely to seek help from a mental health uh, disorder from their primary care provider than they are to go to a mental health professional. Usually poor communication with healthcare providers is often an issue, and there is definitely a shortage of bilingual or Spanish-speaking mental health professionals. Bilingual patients are evaluated differently when evaluated in English versus Spanish, and they are more frequently undertreated than their white counterparts. Now, mental health problems can be hard to identify because Latinx people will often focus on physical symptoms and not psychiatric symptoms during their doctor's visits. Now, when we're talking about, you know, mental health, let's also talk about access to insurance, right? 18% of Latinx people in the U.S. do not have health insurance. With those of Honduran and Guatemalan origin having the highest rates of being uninsured. Now, in 2018, over 56% of Latinx uh, young adults between the ages of 18 to 25 
and then adults 26 through uh, 49 they had serious mental illnesses they, they mentioned that they had serious mental illness but they did not seek any treatment for those illnesses and nearly 90 percent of Latinx people over the age of 12 with a substance use disorder also did not receive treatment. So again, as I mentioned, there are screening tools that are available. If you go on um, Mental Health America's website and screening tools are one of the quickest and easiest ways to determine whether you are experiencing symptoms of a mental health condition. So, you know, take a few moments uh, to do that. They, I believe they do have it available in Spanish so that our um, Latinx brothers and sisters will be able to go ahead if they want to partake in, you know, taking that, that screening tool. And actually, I, I invite anyone who may think that you're struggling, you know, uh, in your mental health to go ahead and, and try that and see, you know, what information you can find out about yourself. Now, if anyone is interested in learning about the resources that are available for members of the Latinx community, you can type mental health resources for Latinx communities in your search engine, and there's information available, along with partnerships and resources that can be of help. Now, I hope that the information that I've shared with you about BIPOC mental health has been helpful to you all, whether you yourself are dealing with mental illness or you know someone in your life who is. We can all learn how to give and get effective support for ourselves and each other. Here's to brighter days. Well, kings and queens, it is time for me to take a walk to my musical jukebox. This first song, was released on his eighth studio album on November 23rd, 1992. And it was the fifth single from the album. It is a song about a wish for humanity of making the world a better place. The artist stated once that this song was the one that he was most proud to have created and its lyrics call for universal improvement. Here's Hear the World by Michael Jackson. And when we come back, I will get into today's topic. about um, the generations and to say we want to make it a better place for our children and our children's children so that they, 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 they know it's a better world for them and think they can make it a better place. There 
There's a place in your heart And I know that it is love And this place be much brighter than tomorrow And if you really try You'll find there's no need to cry In this place you feel there's no hurt or sorrow There are ways to get there If you care enough for the living Make a little space Make a better place Heal the world Make it a better place For you and for me And the entire human race There are people dying Yeah.
beautiful people. So today's topic is on the effects of global warming. Now first let me just say climate change includes both global warming driven by human-induced emissions of greenhouse gases and the resulting large-scale shifts in weather patterns. Though there have been previous periods of climatic change since the mid-20th century, Humans have had an unprecedented impact on Earth's climate system and caused change on a global scale. The largest driver of warming is the emission of gases that create a greenhouse effect, of which more than 90% are carbon dioxide and methane. Fossil fuel burning, like coal, oil, and natural gas, for energy consumption is the main source of these emissions with additional contributions from agriculture, deforestation, and manufacturing. The human cause of climate change is not disputed by any scientific body of national or international standing. Temperature rise is accelerated or tempered by climate feedbacks, such as loss of sunlight, reflecting snow, and ice cover increasing water vapor, which is a greenhouse gas itself, and changes to land and ocean carbon sinks. So before I continue, let me explain the difference between global warming and climate control. Now, global warming refers to the long-term warming of the planet, and climate change encompasses global warming but it refers to the broader range of changes that are happening to our planet. These include rising sea levels, shrinking mountain glaciers, accelerating ice melt in Greenland, Antarctica, and the Arctic, and the Arctic, and the shifts in flower plant blooming times. Now, these are all consequences, village, of warming which is mainly caused by people burning fossil fuels and putting out heat-trapping gases into the air. Now, these two terms are sometimes used interchangeably, but you should know that they refer to slightly different things. Temperature rise on land is about twice the global average increase, leading to desert expansion and more common heat waves and wildfires. Excuse me, wildfires. Wildfires, excuse me, my throat's getting dry. <clears throat> Now, I am sure that you have all noticed more and more these days that we're hearing all about the Western states and how they're experiencing longer widespread fire seasons than before. In fact, I can honestly say that I wasn't even aware that there was such thing as a fire season until a few years ago. And I actually believe I read recently that in places like Siberia, they too are experiencing wildfires due to abnormally high temperatures. Now, let's think about last year's hurricane season, shall we? During the 2020 season, 
which was the most active and the fifth costliest Atlantic hurricane season on record. We actually went through the whole list of storm names, and then they had to use names from the Greek letter storm naming system. That's deep. It also, last year, had the highest accumulated cyclone energy, and it was the fifth consecutive above average season from 2016 onward. Now, of the 30 named storms, 14 became hurricanes, and seven of those became major hurricanes. Temperature rise is also amplified in the Arctic, where it has contributed to melting permafrost, glacial retreat, and sea ice loss. Now, if you guys watch, um, I love watching Planet Earth. Um, and, you know, of course they talk about the animals and stuff and that's all fascinating, but I also love when they're talking about like what's happening to our world, to our land. When they show you how, you know, that sea, that, that ice melting is happening um, and you see those glaciers, you know, coming apart as a result of, you know, those high temperatures, it is a sight to behold. But you know, what I'm talking about here is what the cause of all that is. And it's not something that's good that is continuing to happen, right? Warmer temperatures are increasing rates of evaporation, causing more intense storms and weather extremes. Impacts on ecosystems include the relocation or extinction of many species as their environment changes, most immediately in coral reefs, mountains, and the Arctic. And those coral reefs, if you, again, are watching something like, uh, you know, planet Earth, you see how beautiful and colorful they are. Well, you should see pictures of those cor coral reefs when they're dying. It's actually heartbreaking. Now, climate change threatens people with food insecurity, water scarcity, flooding, infectious diseases, extreme heat, economic losses, and displacement. These human impacts have led the World Health Organization to call climate change the greatest threat to global health in the 21st century. Even if efforts to minimize future warming are successful, some effects will continue for centuries, including rising sea levels, rising ocean temperatures, and ocean acidification. So you may be thinking, okay, CK, so why should we be concerned, really? Well, if what I've said so far is not enough, then maybe this will interest you. Who do you think is impacted the most by climate change and global warming? I'll wait. Well, if you said BIPOC communities, then ding, 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 ding. Tell them what they want, Bob, because you would be correct. Yes, climate change disproportionately affects members of disadvantaged communities and groups who face socioeconomic inequalities, including BIPOC communities. As the United States becomes more racially and ethnically diverse, promoting public engagement with climate change across diverse audiences is becoming increasingly important. We need to pay attention to this matter, y'all. Prior research has shown that BIPOC communities in the U.S., including Latinx, 
African-American communities and other non-white ethnic groups are more concerned than our white counterparts about climate change because it's not affecting them. Just saying. Latinx communities are said to be the most concerned about this. Now, Americans can be categorized into six distinct groups based on their beliefs, attitudes, and actions related to global warming. First up, the alarmed are the most certain that global warming is happening, and they are most concerned about it and are most supportive of climate policies and actions. And then two, we have the concerned, who also think global warming is happening and view it as a serious threat but tend to perceive it as more distant and less urgent than the alarmed. Now, nearly six in 10 Americans are either alarmed or concerned. And then you have the cautious, the disengaged, and the doubtful. And they are each at different stages of understanding global warming and are less engaged with the issue. The dismissive tend to reject the reality and threat of human-caused global warming and oppose taking action to address it. Now, can you guess who are among the so-called dismissive? All right, well, just listen closely. We find that Latinx communities, 69%, and African-American communities, about 57%, are more likely to be alarmed or concerned about global warming than our white counterparts at 49%. In contrast, whites are more likely to be doubtful or dismissive, right? Which is at 27% compared to members of the Latinx community, 11% and African-Americans, 12% compared to whites. Latinx and African-Americans also report greater willingness to join a campaign to convince elected officials to take action to reduce global warming. Now, more than one in three Latinx, which is about 37%, and African-Americans, 36%, say that they would definitely or probably join a campaign, while about one in five whites at 22% said they would. So you see, once again, Village, this also speaks to the importance of your vote in that it is not simply about the president, but it also pertains to those people who make decisions that impact our daily lives. And you should want to have something to say about that, right? Now, research suggests that BIPOC communities may be more concerned than whites about climate change because they are often more exposed and vulnerable to environmental hazards and extreme weather events. One particularly important example is that BIPOC communities are more likely than whites to be exposed to air pollution. Inequitable exposure to environmental problems such as this may also explain, at least in part, why Latinx and African-Americans report greater intentions to engage in climate activism. It is definitely important to understand how various groups of people perceive and respond climate and why there are differences between groups. It can help to improve communications about climate change across diverse audiences and more effectively support public engagement and action, right? So countries that have suffered 
the gravest consequences of climate change are those primarily inhabited by BIPOC, such as countries across Africa and Asia. These regions have a long history of exploitation by the West through colonialism and slavery, which made many Western countries significantly wealthy. Today, the West's exploitation of the global South continues. This is witnessed from the exploitation by the industries which pollute the environment, contributing to climate crisis and reinforcing systems of oppression upon BIPOC, whose land and livelihoods are destroyed as a result. Now, in the West, BIPOC also endure the worst impacts of the climate crisis. For example, in the U.S., there have been many studies that reveal how Black communities suffer disproportionately to their white counterparts. Deeply rooted discriminatory practices and policies, including unequal opportunities in education and employment, as well as housing segregation, have made Black people more vulnerable to the impacts of climate change. A disproportionate number of Black people live in areas that are polluted, reducing their air quality, and increasing the negative impact on their health. Now, one example of this village is Cancer Alley, which was originally dubbed Plantation Country. Ever heard of it? Well, it's an 85-mile-long stretch in the state of Louisiana mostly occupied by Black people and economically disadvantaged residents. The area is reported to have the highest cancer rate in the U.S. due to air pollution and chemical fumes caused by almost 150 oil refineries, chemical facilities, and plastic plants. Now, the U.N. has described Cancer Alley as a form of environmental racism and has demanded that it must end. In addition, an important study published last year connected climate change to pregnancy risks, with Black women being the most affected due to their increased exposure to air pollution and high temperatures caused by global, global warming, leading them to give birth to underweight, premature, or stillborn babies. Are you still asking why we should care? In response to the racial discrimination faced by Black communities in the U.S., the U.N. High Commissioner for Human Rights made a statement highlighting the disproportionate impacts they face caused by the climate crisis. He also recognized how these impacts are tied to historical and structural racism, which has pushed communities of African descent into situations of marginalization and poverty called out the human rights abuses by industries and other business interests and emphasize the critical role that businesses must play in upholding human rights in accordance to the UN guiding principles on business and human rights. Now, Ben and Jerry's is a prominent member of the B Corp movement. So B Corporations, you guys, are a new kind of business that balances purpose and profit. They are legally required to consider the impact of their decisions on their workers, customers, suppliers, community, and the environment. 
And this is a community of leaders driving a global movement of people using business as a force for good. Now they are a good example of a business that's stepping up and speaking out about climate change as a racial justice issue. And on their website, they have outlined the reasons as to why. Go ahead, Ben and Berries. Okay, so at least I'm not gonna have to, you know, stop with having my every once in a while treats of, you know, strawberry cheesecake and chunky monkey. Yay, me. Okay. And guess who else is joining the ranks village? Starbucks. What? Yes, Starbucks. I mean, considering what happened a couple of years ago at Starbucks, you know, with those two African-American men that were, you know, waiting to, um, you know, they were, they were going to have a meeting with um, a white man, actually. And they were waiting at the table, waiting for him to arrive. And, uh, you know, one of the workers, you know, felt that they were suspicious looking and called the police and all that jazz. Remember that? Yeah. Well, Starbucks, they too are incorporating equitable solutions into their business strategy and have also highlighted their commitment to climate action as well as reaffirming their commitments to human rights through their mission to advance environmental justice by aligning their commitment to sustainability with their commitment to human rights. Oh, Starbucks. What is needed is for more businesses to step up and invest in racial equality in order to bring justice to BIPOC around the globe and mitigate the climate crisis and for governments and other sectors to do more in following suit. So as always, beautiful people, I invite you all to read up on these things, on the UN's guiding principles on business and human rights, as well as to visit the websites of Ben and & Jerry's and Starbucks to learn more about their commitments to incorporating equitable solutions to climate action and human rights, and learn about Cancer Alley, particularly in St. James Parish in Louisiana, and the challenges that our African-American brothers and sisters face to their health and culture. I hope that you all have a better understanding now as to why we as BIPOC communities should care about this very, very important topic. This next song had record sales and access to 20 million copies, and it is the eighth best-selling physical single of all time. And it became the fasting-selling U.S. pop single and history the first ever to be certified multi-platinum. It received three Grammys, an American Music Award, and a People's Choice Award. The intention behind the vocal arrangements of this song was that it be sung from a first-person viewpoint, allowing the audience to internalize the message. This is an appeal for human compassion. Here's mega hit, We Are the World, written by Michael Jackson, and Lionel Richie, and produced by Quincy Jones. Now, see if you can all, like, if you can recognize all the artists that participated in this major musical event.
time when we heed a certain call when the world must come together as one there are people dying oh when it's time to lend a hand to life the greatest gift of change We all are part of God's great big family And the truth You know love is all we
Okay, kings and queens, it's time for our inspirational story for the week. Now, this week's story is called The Chef's Daughter. And here's the story. Once there was a girl who was complaining to her dad that her life was so hard and that she didn't know how she would get through all of her struggles. She was tired and she felt like as soon as one problem was solved, another would arise. Being a chef, the girl's father took her into the kitchen. He boiled three pots of water that were equal, equal in size. He placed potatoes in one pot, eggs in another, and ground coffee beans in the final pot. He turned the burners off after 20 minutes and removed the potatoes from the pot and put them in a bowl. He did the same with the boiled eggs. He then used a ladle to scoop out the boiled coffee and poured it in a mug. He asked his daughter, what do you see? She responded, potatoes, eggs, and coffee. <laughs> Father told her to take a closer look and touch the potato. So after doing so, she noticed they were soft. Her father then told her to break open an egg. She acknowledged the hard egg. And finally, he told her to take a sip of the coffee. It was rich and delicious. Too bad I'm not a coffee drinker. Anyway, after asking her father what all of this meant, he explained that each of the three food items had just undergone the exact same hardship. 20 minutes inside of boiling water. However, each item had a different reaction. The potato went into the water as a strong, hard item, but after being boiled, it turned soft and weak. The egg was fragile when it entered the water with a thin outer shell protecting a liquid interior. However, after it was left to boil, the inside of the egg became firm and strong. And finally, their ground coffee beans were different. Upon being exposed to boiling water, they changed the water, ate something new all together. He then asked his daughter, which are you? When you face adversity, do you respond by becoming soft and weak? Do you build strength or do you change the situation? What's the moral of the story, beautiful people? Well, Life is full of ups and downs, wins and losses, and big shifts and momentum, and adversity is a big part of this experience. And while many of us would rather not face adversity, it doesn't have to always be a negative thing. In fact, handling adversity can be a positive experience that can lead to personal development. You choose how to respond to adversity, whether you let it break you down or you stand up in the face of it and learn from it. In many instances, facing adversity gives you a chance to learn important lessons that can help you grow as a person. When facing adversity, it's important to recognize your freedom to choose how you respond. You can respond in a way that ultimately limits you, or you can choose to have a more productive response that could potentially open windows of opportunity that we didn't even know existed. Now this song was the best-selling of this artist's solo career. 
and it was co-produced with Phil Spector. Shortly before the artist's death, he credited his wife as the one who provided most of the song's lyrics and content, for which she did receive co-writing credit. It peaked at number three on the Billboard Hot 100. This song is one of the most performed songs of the 20th century, and it was inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame's 500 Songs That Shaped Rock and Roll. And did you know, Village, that since 2005, event organizers have even played this song before the ball drops in Times Square in New York City? My, my, you learn something every day, no matter how big or small. Here's Imagine by John Lennon.
Now, before I go village, I thought that it was only fitting to close tonight's show with this song. It was released in 1967 and it topped the charts in the UK, but it actually performed poorly here in the US. And that's because Larry Newton, the president of ABC Records, disliked the song and refused to promote it. But after appearing in the film, Good Morning Vietnam, the song was re-released in 1988 and it rose to number 32 on the Billboard Hot 100. This recording was also inducted in the Grammy Hall of Fame in 1999. Even though there were rumors that this song was originally written for Tony Bennett, who was said to have turned it down, Graham Nash dispelled those rumors by stating that this song was specifically written for the artist who sang it because of his ability to bring people of different backgrounds together. Here's What a Wonderful World by Louis Armstrong. I see trees of green, red roses too. I see them blue. For me and you And I think to myself What a wonderful world I see skies of blue And clouds of white The bright blessed day The dark sacred night and I think to myself, what a wonderful world. The colors of the rainbow, so pretty in the sky, are also on the faces of people going by. I see friends shaking hands. Well, kings and queens, we've come to the end of another show. I know, right? I do hope that the information provided will be of help to you. Remember, it is always a good idea to do your own research, no matter what the topic is, especially if your life is involved. Thank you so much for tuning in this week, and I look forward to being with you all again next week. 
please be sure to follow Village Mentality on Instagram and Facebook at villagementality.ckm. Also, you can catch all episodes of Village Mentality on Spotify, Google Podcasts, Anchor, Radio Public, and Breaker. And there's also a link available to each episode on Instagram and Facebook at villagementality.ckm, as well as theawakenedlounge.com backslash village hyphen mentality. And just remember that God has got me and he's got you too. Be blessed, beautiful people. And here's the brighter days. <laughs>